Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, lit that matters. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Lit Matters Podcast. A few years back, I had the wonderful fortune of visiting the castle, the actual castle where they filmed Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I remember thinking of the lady who led that tour. You have the perfect job. The job I want when I grow up or I retire or whichever one comes first. But if it's not that job, I would say today's guest has the kind of job I want. She's both a writer and a manager at a bookstore. So this is my dream job. We are joined today by Amber Reed. She is a writer who has multiple stories published in anthologies, Eternal Frankenstein and Tales from a Talking Board. And when she's not writing, she's the manager of an independent bookstore in one of the most charming California towns I have ever visited. So Amber, uh, I, I, I enviously welcome you to the show today. Thank you, Chris. It's <laughs> Good to be here. It is so great to have you. Um, you know, Amber, this is this is a show called Lit Matters, and it's really a, a show about books and reading and why we love reading. So I ask every guest this question: Have you always been a reader? How did you become a reader? You know, how did you develop being a reader? Why does reading matter to you? You know, I have always been a reader. I don't even. I don't remember like a formative book. Um, I've I've loved reading for a really long time. Um, I got into book collecting and like making sure to go to the bookstore to get books when I was um, really into the babysitters club at very young age. Um, And I remember I would line them up all on my shelf, make sure I had them all. Um, But yeah, I've I've always loved reading. Um, I think it's, it's, it's both an escape and also helps open our minds. You know, you get to, to escape into another world, but also learn something about our world. Yeah, I, I teach a, ch- a class on children's literature as well, too. And don't think I haven't read a number of those Babysitter's Clubs books as well, too. Uh, and and I've, I've read so many. And it is, it is both that escape and that grounded in reality of like the world we're living in today as well, too. And yeah, um, you know, not only reading, I'm curious, have you always loved the old stuff? Because as we were talking about before the show, you know, I, I teach Shakespeare and Beowulf and Arthurian literature. And people look at me like I'm Grindel himself. Like, you know, why do you read all that old, old stuff? Have you always loved things that have a bit of age to it? Have you always loved the classics? Have you always been drawn to that? Uh, so, so again, why do you like reading things like Homer and the Iliad? Uh, I got into, um, actually, Rome is my first love. I got into ancient Rome when I was about 13. Um, And uh, that is is my, like, uh, passion in my area of study is Roman literature. Um, I I picked up this novel by Colin McCullough called The First Man in Rome. um, There's, like, this wall of used books at uh, a Long's. 
And I picked this book up, but I'm like, can you please buy this for me to my grandfather? And he did. And I don't know why still, because it's this like three inch thick brick, like a romance, like a romance novel cover. I was like 13, but he did it. Um, And I've been like obsessed with the Romans ever since. Um, And that was really my gateway into all things classic. I read Iliad, I think for the first time when I was a sophomore in high school, um, and so yeah, a couple like a year and a half later. Your fellow classmates want to love you. There's the one over there with that 700 page book. I, I had the same thing with Lord of the Rings. And it's funny how you mentioned like falling in love with the location first. I, I, as you said that, immediately I did the same with London. My my parents when I was a kid had a, a they won a trip to to the UK and they didn't take me and I was so enamored with the place they were going that I couldn't go to I fell in love with everything London and started watching Monty Python and you know the Avengers the old series as well too and things like that Doctor Who as a result of a location so we had a similar pathway there just a different city uh that's so cool well, well today you're here to talk about the Iliad and congratulations you officially have the oldest book on my podcast and it's going to be a hard one to beat i'm trying i'm trying to book a guest who can go older than the iliad uh but but i'm I'm curious can you give us sort of a spoiler free least you need to know about homer's the iliad for for readers who haven't read it before and for somehow do not know the story i think we're probably going to get into spoiler territory later But uh, it's a a lot of people think of the Iliad as being the story of the Trojan War. It's actually a fraction of the Trojan War. It takes place over um, not that long, just in the very last year of the 10 year war. Uh, It's the story of Achilles, the like strongest Greek hero, essentially deciding to quit fighting because of a dishonor done to him by the, uh, the leader of the Greeks, Agamemnon, and sort of how his refusal to fight ripples out into the the war itself um and yeah and it it ends before i mean everybody i think most people you know know about the Trojan horse and the you know the fall of the city um spoiler alert (laughs) um but uh amber let me free you from this this book's been around for 3,000 years. If we have spoilers today, it's okay. It is not on us. It's on our listeners. So you spoil away. No problem. I'm there with you. Okay. So so this is for our listeners. It's okay if we give away a plot device. It's been around a while. Yeah, Troy's going to fall. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but yes, it, actually, it ends before the fall of the city, which is another thing that's that's strange to people who are coming into the Iliad with with knowledge of the Trojan War cycle, but maybe not Homer specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I have a question later on. I ask you as well too that I will give you a chance to give us how to find out how all of this plays out. As I did, I, I must admit, I, I and, and I've read this before several times, but I still reached the end and thought I need to go further. So it opens up all kinds of little rabbit holes. Um, so let's just start here. Let's let's begin at the basics. Are you Team Troy? Are you team Greek? Um, and I know it's so much more complicated than simply that. When you read this book, who are you pulling for? Uh, I'm team Troy all the way. <laughs> I wish they won. Let's revise it. The good guys win. 
um, yeah, it, I mean, it is more complicated. There's, there's, you know, the fact that the Trojans did the initial wrong that caused the war and all that, but the Trojans are awesome. They should have won. I found myself going to the glossary at the end of all of the uh, Trojan warriors who were killed. And they almost always starts with an A uh, and and it's like stabbed through the nipple, stabbed through the head, stabbed through. And I'm like, man, they, you know, those nameless starts with an A. They did not do so well. Um, So your your team, Troy, uh, the Greeks helped me out a little bit. You know, I'm even afraid to say some of the pronunciations. Are, are they the, the Achaeans? The Achi- uh, what are we looking at there? The, the Achaeans. The Achaeans. I've also heard it say Achaeans, but I think that Achaeans is okay. English pronunciation anyway. But we're paying attention mostly to swift-footed, as they always tell us, Achilles. Uh, apparently, he's rather fast, as they remind us time and time and time and time again. So that leads to my next question. If you are Team Troy... I'm assuming you are also team Hector, the, you know, oldest Prince of Troy, I take it, uh, and not team Achilles. Is that correct? That is correct. I love Hector. He's one of my favorite characters in the epic, actually. He's, um, he's so, he tries to be everything for everybody, which of course you can't do, but there's something that's really both relatable and tragic about that. Um, where he's the rock that the city is standing on. And if you take him away, everything else crumbles. And he knows that um, and tries so hard not to fail anybody. And obviously you can't do that. It's not possible. Uh, he's, He's a very human person for this sort of larger than life heroic cast you know he's you know deeply loves his wife deeply loves his kid seems to be a wonderful son all the people of the city love him and he's wonderful and 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 tragic (laughs) yeah i i felt the same way amber as you describe it that way use the word human uh part of what took me back in this rereading of the iliad was just how complex he is for a character written you know, in it from an oral tale, probably 3000 years ago, he was, he was the most rounded character in this. And at times others, you know, didn't feel that way to me, to me, but he certainly did. And, and you're right. And you're, 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 we, I know we'll get to this. You're, you're forgetting his relationship with his brother and all of his lost brothers as well, too, because this is not going well. So, so you are team Troy, you are team Hector. There's another team that's out there as well, too, and that's these gods and goddesses. And man, what jerks they are. <laughs> I just wanted to punch some of them in the face at times. And, and I'm not a violent person. I'm a, you know, I, I, I haven't stabbed anyone through the neck or the nipple as we saw time and time and time again. Uh, what did you think of all of the gods and the goddesses? Um, you know, they all have their own little games to play and their favorites and they are so destructive so infantile so intrusive in this how do you sort of read that part uh with the gods and goddesses and and do you have favorites of those as well too are you are you are you aligning yourself with the gods or goddesses that are also team uh troy team hector somewhat um, they are they're, they're, they see they're very petty and 
for being these otherworldly figures, they, they do have these very infantile concerns. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not fair. They're getting on the battlefield themselves and fighting and none of them will just, you know, let events play out except for Zeus who could actually do something and then can't for reasons. Um, I think there are, there are various ways to look at, at the presence of the gods. Like, are they the hands of, of fate in a way? Um, or are they more internal, um, sort of almost reflecting the psychology of the characters? Like there's the part where um, uh, Athena grabs Achilles by the hair to tell him to stop. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're both external forces bearing down on us, but also sort of an internal voice um, telling us what to do or what not to do. Uh, so it, I think also when you're looking back on these epic things, the, the gods can be, I mean, the, these gods are, were very real to them. And as much as many, many ancients, just like many people today were, were atheists, they also were deeply religious in ways as a, as a people. So looking back on, on the idea that these, these external forces were literally being brought to bear is pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I imagine if your entire civilization is, is being destroyed, you're trying to figure out why these things have turned against you, right? I mean, it's the, that's the, one of the most human things possible. Um, this leads us to, a, to, to another question, which is uh, we talked briefly about the fit, recent film version, uh, Troy, I believe, uh, where I think they took all the gods and goddesses out and it leaves just beautiful Brad Pitt and whoever else is there. <laughs> you talked a little bit about that. Do you like the film? Are you, are you team uh, film version of Troy or not? <laughs> uh, I do not like that movie. I really hate that movie, actually. Um, I have like four copies of it because people know I hate it. And so they give me copies of it because it's funny. Um, like, no, no more Troy, please get it away. <laughs> um, the, the decision to leave the gods out is really interesting because, I mean, except for there's, they have Achilles' mom who's like standing in the ocean to represent that she's a goddess, a bizarrely, a bizarre movie. Um, but it's interesting because they are so integral to the epic. Um, they recently did a Netflix um, adaptation called Troy Fall of a City, which I actually did really enjoy. And they integrate the gods in a really interesting uh, a way that's more akin to the epic. That That is good to know. And A, it, this also shows you watched the Brad Pitt Troy much closer than I did because I had no idea that that was actually played out. I, I think I skipped that part or, you know, fell asleep or went for popcorn. So Troy Fall of a City, uh, that that is a must. And Troy, Brad Pitt, Eric Vanya, no. I like Eric Vanya. Thumbs down. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, we, we are establishing our, our positions and all of this. Um, I had a colleague recently who will remain nameless uh, <laughs> said to me this exact phrase or some version of this. I, I don't like the Iliad. It is all swords, sandals, swearing, and savagery. You know, the realm of men, dumb, stupid men. <laughs> well, I'll let you address this for that, that comment for one quick moment. But what did you think? I mean, there are also some really fascinating female characters in this that get overshadowed by the brilliance of, of how, how, how Hector is portrayed and, and the swift-footed, you know, 
<laughs> nature of Achilles and everyone else involved. So, so, so what do you think? You can address both of those, the statement itself and the female characters. Um, so the statement itself, I mean, in <laughs> the realm of men, there's, there's so much fighting um, and so much death, but also one of the things about the Iliad that I think is not touched upon very often is how much about empathy it is and suffering and sharing that suffering and how cutting yourself off from your community is damaging. I mean, that's essentially what Achilles does. He, he tries to stop being human. He's so angry and then so devastated by grief that he just stops existing in the realms of men. Um, his wrath is godlike. Um, and that causes so much damage that removing yourself from people causes so much damage. Um, and there are a lot of moments in the Iliad where the characters do sort of share their grief, where they look at someone else suffering and then are able to, to you know, to identify with that and then and, and empathize on that level. And that's, I think, something that is often ignored in, because there is so much death and, you know, wholesale slaughter of these Trojans on the battlefield. Um, and sometimes the other way around. And that, you know, that suffering, that idea of empathy and, and suffering together actually does come back to the female characters. There's, there's this moment when um, Patroclus's body is brought back um, and they, they finally do, um, do bury him or burn him. Um, and Briseis is mourning for him because he was kind to her you know, she's been taken as a, as a captive and passed around as a prize, but he was kind to her. Um, and so she's mourning for him. And she's also mourning for all the things she's lost. And then the women around her, they, they know things are even going to get worse. And they know that their suffering hasn't come to an end. They come together in, in their grief. And there's something that's very uh, profound about that sort of, um, understanding in the midst of this horrific killing. Um, but there are some really interesting female characters, I think, in, in the Iliad. I mean, um, some of them are sort of ciphers or minor figures who don't have a lot of personality. Um, but Helen actually is a fascinating one. She, how much agency Helen has can be sort of debated back and forth and has been debated back and forth. Um, but she's, seems to blame herself for leaving with Paris or was it the fault of the gods? You know, she, she knows how hated she is, but also has come to love her new family. Um, especially Hector, whom she has some bonding moments with. Um, and, and so there is this sort of interesting thing about Helen where she's this ambivalent character, both, you know, and sort of a, an object being fought over, but also, her agency is is there and then she herself questions it and then andromache hector's wife is just so tragic i know i'll ask later again how we can finish this story and this is where i really struggled because i know what happens to andromache i know what happens to to troy and all of the women here and it's interesting because as you, as you described this as we we talked about earlier you know before the show started i'm a lover of shakespeare and and my favorite play is king lear but 
Hamlet's a close second. And every time I teach it, my students will always think, you know, you know, what, what's he to Hecuba? And they're like, I don't even know who Hecuba is. And I always talk about how Shakespeare knew his mythology and he knew his Troy and he's comparing Denmark. And, and so when you describe knowing what's going to happen and like the lamenta- lamentations of the Trojan women, that that's Ophelia when she says to, to have seen what I have seen. And then she pauses and says, see what I see. And she almost was like this Cassandra character who understands what's about to happen and how difficult that is and, and, and how best to cope with the inescapable. And, and, and yeah, it's, I, I was struck. And so again, those moments in the text, I was really drawn to them. I, I must admit, I, I would skip over the Ajaxes and the Nesters of the world to get back to their story in, in, in so many ways. Um, so there are some real jerks in this story. Um, and <laughs> I'll just say this as bluntly as possible. If you could banish one character to the most torturous island of torment, and, and I want to make sure I have this right. I wrote this out. An island of cyclope. That's, that's plural for a cyclops, right? An island of harpies and hydra and six-headed monsters and sirens. Just the worst possible place to be sent to. Odysseus, welcome to this later. Who would you send there? Like, who's the most detestable person in this tale? Uh, Agamemnon. I would send Agamemnon. He's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and that's saying something. So, so for our listeners, remind us who Agamemnon was. Um, Agamemnon is the, um, the leader of the Greek forces. He's the king of Mycenae um, and the person who's really spearheaded this Trojan War effort. Um, he, at the beginning of the Iliad, uh, is, uh, he's taken the daughter of a priest of Apollo as a, as a war prize. And then when the priest of Apollo brings tribute and asks for her back, refuses. Um, and so when the, when the, the gods, or well, Apollo sends this plague um, that's killing all the soldiers. And he's like, well, I guess I'll give her back, but I'll take somebody else's prize instead. And so he takes um, Briseis, Achilles' war prize. Um, and, uh, and that's what starts Achilles' rage. But he's just so petty and detestable. He has like one redeeming quality, which is that I, I really believe he loves his brother, Menelaus. That's like it. Everything else is just detestable. He, I will talk about it later, I guess, when we talk about the continuing, the, con, the con, continuation of the Iliad. Um, but he deserves his fate. <laughs> and, and to remind our listeners, Menelaus is the former husband to Helen, right? Uh, he's the Greek um, uh, former husband before she is wooed to, to uh, perhaps by the gods as well, too. Um, Agamemnon also has a bit of a, a daughter problem, I would say. Is that correct? Before this story starts, you kind of fill in that, that blank there that I, I know the Iliad maybe addresses. I can't remember. I think they, they mention it. Um, I don't think you get the whole story, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, he, he sacrificed his daughter in order to get good winds to go to Troy. Um, mm. After tricking her mom into bringing her to the encampment by saying she's going to marry Achilles. Um, yeah. 
You know, I, I, as I'm thinking this through, I don't think this episode drops on Father's Day, but it may. And and if it does, we we do not have our Father of the Year candidate in Agamemnon. I I don't know. I'll I'll check the recording schedule, but uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll move it forward just for that very purpose. Um, <laughs> Amber, do you mind reading a passage from? the Iliana, your favorite passage and there's so many really wonderful parts um especially at the end the end was so good uh, you know again spoilers but the 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 priam um achilles encounter at the end is so good it is so good i that was i debated reading that i chose a different passage from earlier on um but it is the end is so good and uh but I chose a passage from book six, actually. Okay, take it away. And for context, um, Hector's come back to the city and um, found his wife, who is, uh, she she knows that he, he's about to die. Um, and she's basically begging him to stay in the city and to stop fighting. And he tells her he can't, mm-hmm. uh, that he, he can't leave his people to die and stay inside the walls. Um, but he's also very unwilling to, to see what happens to her if he does fall. Um, so he, uh, after saying all of that, he reaches to pick up his son um, from his son's nurse. And uh, I will, then this happens. Um, in the same breath, Shining Hector reached down for his son, but the boy recoiled, cringing against his nurse's full breast, screaming out at the sight of his own father, terrified by the flashing bronze, the horsehair crest, the great ridge of the helmet nodding, bristling terror, so it struck his eyes. And his loving father laughed, his mother laughed as well, and glorious Hector, quickly lifting the helmet from his head, set it down on the ground, fiery in the sunlight, and raising his son, he kissed him, tossed him in his arms lifting a prayer to Zeus and, and the other deathless gods. Zeus, all you immortals, grant this boy, my son, may be like me, first in glory among the Trojans, strong and brave like me, and rule Troy in power. And one day let them say, he is a better man than his father, when he comes home from battle, bearing the bloody gear of the mortal enemy he's killed in war, a joy to his mother's heart. So Hector prayed and placed his son in the arms of his loving wife, and Jeromache pressed the child to her scented breast, smiling through her tears. Her husband noticed, and filled with pity now, Hector stroked her gently, trying to reassure her, repeating her name. And Jeromache, dear one, why so desperate? Why so much grief for me? No man will hurl me down to death against my fate. And fate? No one alive has ever escaped it. Neither brave man nor coward, I tell you. It's born with us, the day that we are born. That's good. <laughs> why did you choose that passage and that is so beautiful um it always sort of brings a tear to my eye it, the this is the last time Hector will see his family um and this idea that in battle he's become something his child can't recognize this figure of fear um that children know to shrink from it, it's very telling that in a in a epic that does praise war it also is very aware that it makes monsters of us mm-hmm. um, and i think there's something just so sort of beautiful about this moment where he can put away 
the warrior and become the father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he does want what I think people want for their children, which is to be a better man than him. Um, and for him to, to grow up strong, um, which will not happen. <laughs> but I, I also, I love that part where, you know, don't, don't be afraid if it's, you know, nobody can kill me against my fate and we can't escape our fate. There's, you know, fate in the Iliad is interesting because it, it does, it, it is, you know, it's sort of cemented. It's going, this is going to happen, but it, it all comes from the internal parts of the character. Nobody is acting out of, out of character. Nobody's being made to do something literally puppeted by the gods for fate. It all comes from our own choices that then lead us to this place. Um, so I think that's just, it's an interesting and sad passage. It, it Not only that, and, and not only is it beautifully written, but if I'm not mistaken, at the very same, he follows this with dragging his jerkish brother out of the bedroom with Helen. So he pulls Paris and says, like, you are the worst brother ever. And do you know what's happening out there? I, I really thought when, when I asked you the question about banishing one character, Paris may pop up there. So I don't want to have that opportunity go away. Would he be your second person to toss on that island? Where do you rank him in the uh, <laughs> island of tortures? Talk to me about Paris for one quick moment. I think he would be the second. Um, he's <laughs> he really is. And I mean, in his defense, it's not his fault. He's inside the, the walls. Aphrodite plucks him from battle. And it's like, no, no, you can't get hurt. You're my favorite. And just puts him in Helen's bed. Um, he's like, well, there's nothing I can do. I, I can't you go back, which he could. Um, but he is, he's, he's the worst. And, and in that, that scene where Hector sort of lambasts him, what he says is really interesting is that it's not that he's not capable. He is completely capable of doing these things. He just doesn't want to. He's lazy and wants to be at home in his wife's bed and he doesn't want to fight. Um, which considering the fact that his actions caused the whole war is very cowardly and horrible. When he has been on that battlefield, it has not gone well for him, if I remember correctly. You know, it, so, so this sort of leads to my next question, Amber, which was, you know, it, I found it almost like one of the like, like the puzzle boxes where you just keep opening up more and more and more puzzles. So you read that beautiful, beautiful passage with Hector and Andromache and, and, and their baby. And right away, I immediately thought, well, why is Paris the favorite of, of, of Aphrodite? And then I went back and like, oh, yeah, I remember that story. And then the idea of like what happens to the baby i needed to find that out as well too so i i went and opened that box and then you know with andromache i went and opened up that box i'm like oh that's a really good one like oh my goodness <laughs> you know the, the 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 twist and turns there i'm curious um for for all of these literary intellectual rabbit holes that we have to find out all the answers uh do you have any recommendations of other text like if we want to find out the answers and you know what, Wikipedia is the most lazy way to do it. How do we find those answers? Like what other text will, will, will give us some of this as well too, that we need to read after this, because this is such a good book. Why not continue the story? Um, my two favorite um, ancient texts um, are probably um, Aeschylus' Oresteia, which is a trip plays 
um, about Agamemnon's homecoming and the aftermath, um, which are very dark. Um, it, it, the first one is, is very dark, essentially a, a murder story where Agamemnon gets his uh, team Clytemnestra. <laughs> um, he's, he's murdered by his wife and it's just excellent. Um, but then this is a, this is a podcast, so it's a listening show, but what our listeners did not see is I was showing celebratory motions, uh, quite happily at the, the, the result continue. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the, the first part. And the second part is, um, sort of how you, how do you deal with, what do you do when your mom has killed your father? Like what, what is your ethical responsibility? um for uh their son and then the last part is sort of a courtroom drama with a bizarrely misogynistic climax um uh but yeah uh that's probably my favorite it's like the it's the only extant greek tragedy trilogy they they wrote in trilogies and that's the only one we have that was presented in full as this trilogy um their also interestingly had a play about Achilles and Patroclus that is lost. Um, we have like fragments where Achilles is mourning Patroclus, Patroclus's thighs. Um, so that would have been an interesting play, <laughs> but sadly lost. They are pretty good thighs though. You have to give him that. I mean, he can wear Achilles armor, you know, so he's got to be yeah. pretty, pretty stacked fellow, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Patroclus is one of my, my favorites. Um, and then the other one, I, um, I'm a big fan of Virgil's Aeneid actually, um, as a, a Latin fan, uh, it's, it, that follows Aeneas, the Prince of Troy, um, it's like secondary Prince of Troy. He's a cousin of, of Hector in Paris and it follows him as he escapes from the city, uh, and tries to, to go like found a new city, which will ultimately be Rome. Uh, and he gets in all sorts of of adventures, and that that epic is the first half is a travel narrative, a la the Odyssey, and the second half is a war story, a la the Iliad. Um, so you you get the best of both, um, and so those are those are my two ancient recommendations. There's also a lot of really interesting modern takes on on it. The Song of Achilles and Circe by Madeline Miller are both excellent books that'll that'll get you into more minor characters in the narrative and, and sort of really characterize them in a um, really modern fleshed out way. So, so Amber, for our listeners, I will actually post all of these on the website um, that will allow them to connect and link to all of these as well too. So they can finish the story as well. Uh, and I will in, in, in creating those links also buy them myself or get them from the library because I need to fill in some of these blanks myself. Um, you know, I, I'm curious. I, I asked you this, you know, before we started taping as well, too. Like, which translation do you th- think works best for you or for a reader? You know, th- th- this is sort of a daunting book. It, it looks large. It has all of these epic, you know, con- con- conventions. So which translation uh, do you recommend for, for most readers? I think the Fagels is a really good entry point. It's um, that's what I was reading from the Fagels translation. It's readable in English, but very poetic. Um, I, I like it a lot, but actually my recommendation for getting into the, the Iliad right now, I'm not sure how long this is going to last, but the um, Almeida theater, 
the Almeida Theatre Company in England did a live reading of the Iliad in 2015, where they did the whole epic 16 hours and done by, I think, 36 different actors. Um, and it's all up on their website right now to watch for free. Uh, it's, it's brilliant. It was so... I found out about it about two hours before it started and it was free to watch online and it was just mind blowing. I was so glad that I, that I, the timing worked, um, that I got to watch most of it live. Um, but really good actors, very dramatic readings. And it's, there's something about listening to it that really brings you in. I mean, it was an oral epic. So, I mean, probably you won't do it in a 16 hour go, but it's a, a nice entry point. I think many people will sit through like an entire Harry Potter or Star Trek marathon or Star Wars marathon that must be the equal to that. I, I need to give this a try. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, I will put that on the website as well, too, so, so people can, can link to that. And it is interesting that, you know, in, in this strangeness of, of, you know, how terrible COVID has been, in some ways, a lot of these theater companies have found ways to still become viable. And you're right, they are opening up access to things that we haven't seen in, in ways. And I, as I said, as, as a lover and teacher of Shakespeare, you know, I found so many productions recently that the Royal Shakespeare Company has just said, here you go, it's now free. You know, don't, don't leave home, watch that. So 16 hours of the, of the Iliad, yeah, I'm in. Uh, I, I'll, 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 I've turned in my grades, it's summertime, I'm ready to go. Uh, we have had several episodes uh, with books in the sci-fi realm, and I'll ask you the question, um, if, if sci-fi speaks to who we are today, can the same application be given for mythology and for the classics? Do you think that it has equal or you know, superior value as well, too? Um, I'll say equal. I won't say I'm, I'm a big like spec speculative fiction fan. Mm -hmm. um, I think in, in a lot of ways, science fiction, comic books, those are, are very much our sort of modern epics and our modern mythology. Um, but I think that they speak to us for similar reasons. You know, you, you have these fantastical stories um, that are larger than life, but that do sort of comment on our, our human condition. Um, so I, I think it's actually, there's a fairly straight line from you know, mythology to mm -hmm. speculative, like modern speculative fiction. Um, and they, they're similar in interesting ways. And I think um, it's a tough thing with the classics because I do think they're, they're incredibly relevant um, and, and in so many ways really show us, you know, who we were and who we are. Um, but I do think that it's, it's very important to, to pay attention to the roots of, you know, uh, like Western and white supremacy in these classical texts and the ways in which they're manipulated um, by, you know, not just like historical thinkers, but also modern thinkers, thinkers um, to, to um, sort of put a stamp of approval on things that should not be approved of, whether or not the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans would have approved of them. And so I think that's always something that's interesting that actually you see with writers um, who sort of reimagine the classics, you see the way that they, they, they comment back on those things like Ursula Le Guin's Lavinia. Um, I mean, Lavinia in, in Virgil's Aeneid gets maybe one line, 
Um, and then, you know, Ursula Wynn reimagines her story. Um, so you see a lot of, of those things. And I think that's a really smart, relevant way to look back at the classics and, um, and comment on them today. I wasn't so convinced upon rereading this that it isn't a 3,000-year-old anti-war text that is revealing the light on toxic masculinity. I mean, there's so much that that's there. It was, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, so stunning. And as you say, and let me come back to this for those of us who were geographically uh, challenged, uh, where is Troy? I mean, so, so here's a destruction of a society that's supposed to be, you know, one of the greatest on the face of the planet. You, you connect it back to sort of like white supremacy as well too. So where would Troy have been and, what would it be? Um, Troy was in Turkey. Um, it's uh, the the people of Troy in its native language was called Wailusa. Uh, and the people were the, the, the Luwian people, which is a, a fairly recent discovery uh, when they were looking into like the, the linguistics and, and some archeology span about these ancient sea peoples. It's um, but yeah, so Troy would have been in Turkey. So Speaking of the movie Troy, where everybody's white, that would not have. I mean, not that. And when, you, and then when you get into into sort of white, like the idea of white culture and like what existed then and what exists now, it's very different. Um, but definitely, not everybody would have been white, um, unlike <laughs> Pitt's Troy. Um, and so, yeah, it would have been, um, you know, the Greeks coming across the the sea to turkey mm -hmm. oh yeah there's so many so many applications you could have this so here's paris taking back the most beautiful woman in the world helen and a fight over that and a fight over you know the very sort of foundations of, of society itself oh yeah that's well that leads us to this final question which is i i always ask this for every book my my guests talk about which is this is a show called Lit Matters. And, and the whole goal is to say, why should we all be reading this book today? And I say this as someone who, you know, loves Shakespeare. And I spend my entire career saying, really, King Lear should matter to you today. I mean, a, a friend of mine asked me recently, like, you know, which is what books do you think is most relevant? I say King Lear in the world we live in right now. And this is you know, pre-election. I said King Lear is the most relevant text we could possibly read. Um why, why does the Iliad matter to our world today? Why does it resonate with us today? I think the biggest thing to me is, does go back to anger. It's the first word in the Iliad. And it really speaks to how our destructive tendencies can cut us off from the people around us, from ourselves, um, and how you know, we have to be able to process those emotions to move on um, and how when we don't, it can cause these, you know, eruptions of, of anger, of violence. Um, and, you know, really that's the most relevant thing to me personally. I, I remember I've, I've not always liked the Iliad, but the moment it became sort of my favorite book, I was very, very angry. And I was in a hero tales class and we were reading the Iliad and I didn't want to read the Iliad. I was so mad. I just wanted to lock myself in my room and scream, but I had a test. So I was going to read the Iliad and I opened it up and I was like, oh, this is it. This is 
exactly what this book is about. Um, and like you say, there are so many applications. I mean, it, it could very well be an anti-war epic about toxic masculinity. Um, and there are plenty of places where, where violence is praised, but you know, as much as it's praised, it's also, it's also derided or slapped down um, for those, those tendencies. Um, yeah, I think it's, but I think, do you think it all comes back to, to both anger and empathy? This idea that we can't, we can't let these emotions cut ourselves off from the world around us. And we have to find a way to connect, um, even if it doesn't solve everything, which I think is another really important point in the Iliad. At the end, Priam and Achilles come together. They mourn together for the people they've lost and, and their own lives that will never be the same. You know, in Achilles' case, he knows it's going to come to an end. Um, and Priam too. So they're mourning for themselves. They're mourning for the people they've lost, the people who will lose them. Um, and, and they do it together. It doesn't solve anything. The war goes on, Troy falls, Achilles dies. But in that moment, it sort of makes them both become more human and it gives them an element of healing um, even in their last hours. We certainly could use a bit of that in 2021 <laughs> empathy and healing and understanding and compassion, you know, even if the outcomes are Troy ish, we certainly need more of that in our lives. Well, that, that does it for another episode of the lit matters podcast. And Amber, before we leave, is there anything you would like to promote or plug or tell our readers that we can run to and find out more of, of about what you're working on? Um, you could follow me on Twitter. I'm um, cheerful underscore Earl. Um, I don't have a working website yet, but you could also, if you're in Petaluma, California, come see me at Copperfield books. Um, I'm usually there. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, it's one of my dream jobs. So you might have to just sort of sidle over a little bit and hire me and give me an apron and let me start, you know, <laughs> working in that bookshop because that sounds like the greatest job ever. Um, so Amber, thank you so very, very much. I, I'm so appreciative of you coming on the show today. Um, so thank you. And, and to all of our listeners, I, I, I want to thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't listened to any of our previous episodes, we have shows up on Moby Dick, on Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand, on Hamlet, uh, on Parable of the Sower. So please go back and revisit some of those those past episodes we found that the past reveals quite a bit at times and please be sure to subscribe to the show leave us a review on apple or podbean or uh, any of the other places where you get your podcast so amber thank you so very much thank you for having me Thank you for listening to Lit Matters. All content is written by Chris Evans and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Music was provided by the band Soup. Find them at Apple Music and Spotify. Mirrors,